0: Good evening everyone. Uh, we can start now. So the topic today is exploring Kenya's c- cybersecurity posture. And I think the team at Muang will suggested this topic after all the shenanigans last week. And we have a lot to talk about, but before we start, we'll ask the panelists to introduce themselves. Ziva if you can quickly introduce yourself and then I'll go over to Bright.
1: Sure. Hi, good evening, or good day, wherever you're tuning in from. My name is Nanjira. I'm a fellow in the Tech and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where I actually research cybersecurity uh, and, and digital financial ecosystems in Africa. So happy to join the session today.
2: Hi, my name is Bright Gameli. I'm a cybersecurity engineer lead at Nekomara, uh, but also the founder of Ashika Hackon Collective that's aims to just shape um, the cybersecurity space. Happy to be here and to have this great conversation.
0: Fantastic. Tyrus is running late. I think he's traveling, so he will tune in at some point. But we can quickly get started. Last week was a big week in cybertech space in Kenya. Both cybertech privacy granted that e-citizen was affected and a lot of Kenyans' personal data and identifiers are there. Kenya also had a massive... M-Pesa outage, And this is a single payment system that runs the entire country. The other payment systems are obviously not as big or as impactful as M-Pesa. So any second M-Pesa is down, the country pretty much runs to a financial halt. And there've been murmurs and lots of ramblings of the current state of data privacy, the current state of cybersecurity in the countries. Before we go into analyzing the situation, I know Nigeria, you've brought a lot about data privacy in Kenya and the threats or the, the situation that Kenya finds itself in. You have a population that wasn't online and within less than a decade, more than half of the population is online. Is the country really prepared for the challenges of the internet. So why don't you start us off, Nigeria? Sure.
1: And there's always room for improvement, right? With such rapid processes or whether it's digitalization or population growth in terms of management and planning. I think what's been happening is that maybe over the last five years, especially, we've been facing a reckoning that has challenged what are the systems we have in place, what are the laws, what are the policies we have in place to actually help protect the space. So technically, on paper, Kenya has a suite of regulations, policies, laws, strategies that sound nice and read well, but when the rubber meets the road in terms of implementation is where they're, we're falling short. And I think last week's events have started to show that. And I think before we even pursue new instruments, whether it's in AI and other emerging technologies, this is really a reckoning about the Kenya's legal landscape alongside all the other strategies that help implement them. And for example, we have the Computer Misuse and Cybercrime Act that was enacted in 2018, followed by the Data Protection Act that went into effect in 2021. We've seen so far with the Computer and Cybercrime Act, its use has mostly been in targeting people in cases that would otherwise be civil cases. This is uh, a, a continental trend of cybercrime laws being used to persecute people or tame people rather than actually addressing the bigger systemic issues. So one big question we can ask ourselves today is how ready is our Cybersecurity Act to address some of the issues we faced? Now, just today, it's turned out uh, there's been an announcement from the Ministry of um, Information Communications and Digital Economy that um, they are ready to amend this act. But isn't it a little too late because they have been called for that to be amended for it to address the bigger issues. And that's where I think the real source is. The politicization of every space inevitably has affected the technical space that is cybersecurity.
0: So Brad and InfoSec often say the chain is as strong as the weakest link. So what happened last week? Can you contextualize that for the average person?
2: I don't know how to explain it really because there's so many theories and so many views that have been given. We saw a massive DDoS attack that has been hating most of the services and it's a group called Unanimous Sudan. They seem to be organizing what they're doing or did they know exactly which to hit to be able to actually cripple the country. I don't know if they started off as a joke, but that brought a lot of services down that brought the country to its knees when it comes to cyber attack. And I think that got every department of agency to start rethinking exactly how our infrastructure uh, and services have been shut up. For well, now to stop, I can see if from the telegram groups. They've gone to Nigeria and Nigeria also seems to have been hit left, right, and Center, but from the news, what we've seen in the in telegram groups and the news that they have sent is that they'll be back to Kenya. Question is, are we ready to be able to actually combat some of these attacks or the DDoS to say? In a way, I say we are lucky that there has not been any sign of exploitation of data. Because that would be bad. DDoS attack. Um, sometimes can be easy to prevent. Sometimes can also be difficult to prevent. In cases depending on the kind of DDoS attacks that is it is, because we have different layers of a DDoS layer. This one is a layer seven, to say, and the end likes. But if the other DDoS attacks being able to happen, and you can Google all of them, they're there. But You basically have to ask yourself: Are you ready for your infrastructure to withstand some of these attacks? So basically, that is what has happened. We can see all the services, or rather, most services are back up and running for now. So the question is, we're we ready for the next one in case it happens again.
0: So, the, for the purposes of uh, our listeners, uh, and since I have a little bit of a technical background, I'll try to yeah. textualize what a DDoS is. And since most yeah. of the followers are financial analysts or people interested in finance, I think if we use just demand and supply and we use that metaphor, you have a server it can supply X amount of slots at any given point in time. When your demand surpasses your supply then your server breaks down, it can't handle the requests and you have a denial of service. So a a DDoS is a distributed denial of service where you have malicious actors who are simulating demand in order to bring down your infrastructure. So I think that's what we saw. And we have this group calling themselves Anonymous Sudan that are claiming to be fronting the attack for whatever reasons. People watch movies. Unfortunately, Hollywood in particular has really either glorified or painted a very interesting picture of how hacking or these malicious attacks happen. You have some disgruntled kids and they're like super smart working out of a basement or some obscure place and does it really happen that way? Or if you're looking at it of late, the discussion that I want to have today is do these things also have state actors that sponsoring such activities to achieve certain agendas? So if you're looking at different
2: kinds of attacks, the activists, the terrorist groups, the, the general hackers who do this, the criminal groups, which are organized groups that do this, the corporate spies that can do this, there's malicious insiders who can also get this done, and then the nation states. And then the nation state is well-funded to be able to carry it on attack the don't stop until they get to that last point, they will find any means and every way to be able to actually triple any kind of a target that they have. So it could be anyone. And, but a DDoS attack, a DDoS attacks in the past to stress test some of the systems that we have built for organizations. And at times it's just scripts that you can actually get online. They're not that difficult to be able to get. There are so many open source tools for you to be able to actually launch. The problem comes in now when you need enough power to be able to actually launch that. And in the past, you need to get those number of systems or machines with powerful computer processing power to be able to do that. These days, you basically can rent servers to do that. And if we saw the Anonymous Sudan uh, group. I forgot the name of the kind of botnet they were using, but there's a botnet that they claim they're using that kind of a botnet, which allows them to be able to rent about 32 servers. And when I check the pricing for that botnet, 32 servers will cost you $60 a day to rent to be able to a DDoS attack, And they will run it for you. So basically clicking and dragging a bunch of IP addresses and, uh, or targets and domains for you to be attacked.
0: So the cost of computing going down is also presenting itself with opportunities that uh, are not so nice or positive. Good note uh, there. I see Tyrus is on. Tyrus, could you quickly introduce yourself?
3: Great. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Sorry if you hear some background noises. i just from the airport. I'm in the cab right now. But my name is Tyrus Kamau, cybersecurity consultant. I've also been quite involved in some of the government initiatives to try and ramp up their cybersecurity oneship previously worked on the national cybersecurity strategy that was back in 2012. And at the same time, I've also been involved in one or two things that involve national interests. So I definitely do have an opinion about how it is that the government can ramp up their efforts and also their skill set in trying to mitigate some of these attacks. And also just to try and look at it beyond technology about having people coming on board and just attacking our infrastructure but also at a very personal level, I feel that for someone who has been in cybersecurity for the last 13 years, I think as a country, we should be doing much better than we are doing right now.
0: Since you have someone who's worked with government, can you explain to us how the government found itself in a situation last week where its major point. critical infrastructure existence was updated, which means the government was losing also a lot of revenue.
3: How did the government end up in such a situation? In my personal opinion and my expertise, I think, one of the things we know is that government does know the threats that it's faced with. right from a military background. They do understand the threat level, they do understand the threat landscape. But for some reason or another, we always find that the institutions that either take shortcuts or they cut corners, they probably not get the right people to be manning the critical infrastructure. And I remember quite well in 2015, there's a meeting that I was involved in with the then CS for information and communication, that is Joe Mushero. And one of the key aspects that we discussed in that meeting is how do we mitigate critical infrastructure from being attacked by hostiles. Now, one of the key things I find that normally takes place is that, unfortunately, elements within government like taking shortcuts. So they, they do understand the threat level, they do understand what faces them, but then they just choose not to take the action, right? So for instance, I can tell you for free that e-citizen platform has a single point of failure, and at the same time, The amount of effort that is put in on a day-to-day basis, try and man these critical infrastructures is not taken with the seriousness that it deserves. So fine, we do have the cybersecurity entrenched within the NSAC, National Security Council, but we find people who are running those particular institutions are not very well versed with exactly what needs to be done. Or they do understand, but they take it very lightly. So it's a balance between competence and also ignorance. And one of the key things that I keep saying is that we've been here before. So in 2013, we had 103 government websites defaced by a 14-year-old Indonesian kid. In 2015, we had a similar attack. And you remember, we also had the, the hacking team expose that happened in 2015. So this is nothing new within the government. And if we have not learned from past lessons, which I find to be the very critical failure point of some of these government institutions, is then what are we doing? We keep pumping a lot of money into infrastructure. We keep pumping a lot of money into policy making, We keep pumping a lot of money and time and resources into putting out what salads out there claiming that the government is ready. All the citizens should go online. All services are going to be offered by the government online. But then we miss the critical aspect of so what happens if someone out there has a keen interest on our citizens' data? What do we do about it? Are we investing enough? So I find that there's a lot of Either ignorance and competence or just not having the right people or doing the right things.
0: Thanks for that. The uh, next question is for you, Benjira. Obviously, you spent a lot of time in, in, in digital policy and looking at different cases, and your work is more international now. This notion of state actors being involved in cyber activities, whether it's cyber terrorism, depending on who is classifying it and whatnot, but state actors are now or state-enabled actors are being used to further a particular agenda, whether it's political or whether it's warfare. There are some quotas that say the Third World War is not going to be fought with bullets and uh, projectiles. It's going to be fought with bits and bytes. And we're seeing elements of this. What impact does that have on a country like Kenya? And how should Kenya's policy be addressing these threats and
1: opportunities? That's a really good question. I think one of the first things when we started getting a gauge of the scale of the attacks that were happening last week was to quickly point out that um, trying to attribute um, those attacks because of the title Anonymous Sudan to the country of Sudan was dangerous. And this is something that is emerging even in the international space that attributing cyber attacks to even state-sponsored actors is very dangerous work just because it's really hard to prove. And anyway, in any case, rather than going down that rabbit hole, I think the point is, how ready are we anyway? Because we can safely assume this is going to be the least chaotic time in our cyber posture going forward. And Tyrus has pointed out what we've seen over the last decade or so. How ready are we should be the bigger question for this new normal. And I think when we saw the government talking about trying to bring 5,000 services online so quickly, those folks in the InfoSec community were like, so what's the posture? How ready are we for this? And those questions are brushed aside because there's a lot of posturing by the government to add or not to meet whatever criteria politically need to be met. I think what's going to be very interesting for countries like Kenya and even what we've just seen happening that's actually unfolding in Nigeria is that sometimes you have to put those kinds of politics of grandstanding aside. I think it's quite commendable in comparison with, Ni- with Nigeria right now that the National Information Technology Development Agency or NETDA in Nigeria has already put out a statement that there's an attack happening. They've noted that they're activists trying to get it through their systems. They've even announced that while MTN has been targeted, even MTN itself has not acknowledged that, but the agency in charge in government has spoken to that. It has issued of ordinary citizens and everybody alike measures they can take in the meantime. We never saw that here. We have a flurry of institutions, of committees set up through our national cybersecurity strategy. The first iteration was in 2012. We just had another one adopted in 2022. Nothing of that sort happened. The first statement we got from the government was rather cavalier through a radio um, interview with the cabinet secretary. And after that, a statement that has only been distributed largely through social media and then through media. There has been nowhere you can go um, in any of the government entities online to get information or real-time updates. We have the Kenya National CERT, for example, housed un- under the Communications Authority. We have the na- National C- Cyber Command Center, and it's even unclear if it still functions under the new cybersecurity um, strategy. All these entities were mum. So there's a big challenge here, culture, uh, the cultural mindset of Cirical, Cirical, hot secret, was keeping it secretive. that has to be got rid of as a matter of urgency within government because you cannot... Treat cybersecurity issues as though, and especially when they're impacting the public, as though they're not to be addressed. Nobody's saying you should attribute immediately. Nobody is saying you speak to something. But what was really sad to see last week and, and into this week is the silence, the loud silence from private actors who are affected and from the government. And that in itself risks fostering distrust in our own cyberspace, not just for us, but because our government loves to entertain the world's view of us. It's also going to look like we're a big bunch of clowns in the Silicon Savannah, to be honest.
0: Cheer- <laughs> I see Bright was uh, chapping and cheering on, so I'll post an <laughs> So we have talked about the different levels of coordination. So the Nigerians tend to be well more coordinated. There's like one single point of information and whatnot. We're not seeing that in Kenya. And for a very long time, tech policy in Kenya has neither been here or there. On one hand, technology, all well, the politicians will keep on yapping or echoing that technology is going to be big. We have the youth, we have MPESA, we have this, we have that and everything else. But from a policy point of view, nobody seems to understand it. The legislature also doesn't quite understand where we need to be at a, at a given point in time. And then now when it comes to national issues, there is no national coordination. So there's no one in the executive whose head is on the chopping block. If this, something of this, of what happened last week comes to an eventuality. Is it the DCI? They have like their own infosec arm Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Is it the military? They also have their own infosec teams doing their own random things or maybe they're doing good stuff. And then... And NS, NSIS also have their own thing. And then the private sector as well. Like at what point now does the communication regulator start acting? And it seems that technically the regulator is sleeping on the job because mm-hmm. these are the things that they need to be advocating for uptime, whatever the threats and advising the government and whatnot. But the way the government is set up in terms of tech and for a very long time, people have been of whether it's started, whether it's just industry and whatnot. but now it's like you can transact. Like, What's the solution and why do we have this distributed mess and nobody's taking any ownership of this situation?
2: Yeah, I, I, think I like the fact that you said, you're not too sure <laughs> what they're doing there. And Tyrus can tell you for free. And for the past, I think almost 10, 12 years, 10 years, there are times when I was away and out of the country, i sent Tyrus Tyrus, I'm like, Hey, I've seen something. I think we need to report. Tyrus will send okay, it to KU Siret or somebody else. All that we hear is silence. We're well, like, look, I'm doing a responsible disclosure. He also finds something, he sends other players in the market, send uh, data exfiltration that has happened in, in government systems or even at the private sector, which we want to report. But what do we get? Total silence. I still have those emails until today, and Thursday confirmed this as well, where we have tried, or people in the private sector has also tried, to make to report things that we're seeing in the market and be able to tell, tell the government that hey, you are vulnerable here, but seems nobody ever take takes it you seriously. Right now, we have the National Security Council, which has the National Computer and Cyber Crimes Coordination Committee. That's the NC4. NC4 has everybody you can think about, such from CAK, CERT, NIS, DCI, name them. Kenya Police, from that's the MPS and everything. Everybody is part of that. They're supposed to be able to have a national talk, which actually exists, which work with private sector. People at Tesco can see all the traffic that comes to the country. Question is who is taking charge of all of this? Because what I've seen right now in the last weeks is the fact that there's a possibility that there's nobody's talking to each other. Somebody, the national police who have their own security team, cybersecurity team is like, we know this is what we know. We'll keep it. The key side will keep their own as well. All other agencies are keeping information and they're not sharing. Now, if you don't share information, what's going to happen? You can't know where exactly to to be able to solve the problem. And we will sit in the dark. That's why communication even becomes a problem. Who gets to send out that information, that communication? What we saw in Nigeria worked so easily that Nipda just came out and said, this is what is happening. We talked to the other people who have been affected they on top of it. That gives even the citizens some comfort that the government is able to see this. So that's what we need to actually look at. Be able to have a very easy collaboration within the government entities and also within the private sector. Right now, when I want to help, if I wanted to offer my help to, to somebody of actually, attacks, maybe this is my viewpoint of anything. Trust me, anybody who I want to talk to is not going to listen to me. Why? Because this is not even Kenyan. And what is he going to say? A Tyrus or any other person that is in the private sector want to share, it took a while before we saw a few people have been put together from public and private sector to be able to work together. What was the outcome of that? Who has been given the job to be done? So, What is the way forward from the meetup that happened or the session that happened to be able to say that we can actually put all of this together and be able to get something out? So I see it's just a collaboration issue that I think there is, that you're not able to get all information to one point. And without that one point, you can't have the best communication now to the public.
0: Thanks. And Anjira, you have your hand up? Please go ahead.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to chime in there uh, on what Bright was speaking about to say that we're also seeing that that culture of silence or of not communicating from government, translating to how the private sector also responds. So in this case, we waited for whether it's Kenya Bankers Association or any other associations in the private sector to merely acknowledge that their systems were down. Bank to m services were down. m itself was down. Nothing to date has been said by any of these entities. So there could be different reasons, obviously, that none of us are privy to, but it does not bode well for the confidence that they would want from customers, and especially as they try to digitize further, for us to know that we can rely on them to communicate to us when something is happening. A mere acknowledgement, if that cannot happen, it doesn't bode well for where we're headed in in a paradigm where the more we digitize, the more we are prone to cyber attacks.
2: Nigeria, I like what you said there. Look at what happened to, we all saw on Twitter, this is no secret. Kenya Air Authority data being leaked out there. Unable able to download them. Everybody was just shared sharing so many WhatsApp groups of private data, which was a matter of national security. There was nothing to be able to say exactly how that was dealt with or how the future of that. If that was not something to be scared of, then I don't think we need to be scared of anything else then.
0: So you guys have raised pertinent points and what I'm getting out of it is InfoSec is mostly mm-hmm. driven, it's driven by display mm-hmm. gerund and uh, it's driven by open standards or open flows of communication and it's very similar to the way the open source community operates. And we are seeing this with practitioners in Kenya. Actually, most InfoSec practitioners always have open networks because it's just the nature of the industry. Now, what I find interesting in Kenya is it's sort of the country is lacking of experts, right? Experts in the field. It's not like an obscure country somewhere in the middle of the Sahara or some island somewhere. There are lots of experts, both Kenyan and non-Kenyan, or lots of experts domiciled in in Kenya and mostly in, in Nairobi. And over the last 10 years, the country has also been shipping out a lot of InfoSec talent. So these are people who would, would initially be trained in banks. They get a little bit of experience mm-hmm. and they ship out to other countries and the ones that are still normally served in the country are probably working remotely
3: for other organizations. So how is it that you have a Google, but you're not able to fix these problems? So this question is for Cyrus. Thank you so much. Actually, I, I really appreciate what Nigeria and uh, Bright have brought out. And let me just start by saying that one of the key things that I've learned over the years is that majority of um, us who are private practitioners, I mean, I've been at this game for the last 14 years or so and I realized that you only become important when you're talking to a government entity or to a government person and they want to ride on your expertise. So basically I, I even came up colloquially with the term. They want to earn bonga points with you. So the thing is that they do know that they don't know and lack of knowledge is quite dangerous. So they want to know just a bit to take to their bosses and they'll probably get a promotion or they probably get recognition and they'll probably be invited to the next seminar or the next conference that is happening out of the country and that has been very systematic. It, it, it has been very endemic in as far as the industry is concerned. I was very privileged to work with Booz and Hamilton in crafting the national cybersecurity strategy back in 2012 that was launched in 2013. And by the time we were launching that particular strategy, they're already uh, back and forth because it was a question of who owns this strategy. Is it, uh, back then it was ICT board, which later became ICTA, or was it the CA? So there's a lot of push and pull. So you realize it's a culture of, I'm the one who discovered it first. I'm the one who has this new shiny policy, this new shiny strategy. I have this newfound knowledge and I need to be the one to be recognized. So that puts a stress on us private practitioners because then we, we don't get to actually contribute to our country. And there have been instances where I've been called in, and there are people who have really appreciated my expertise 100%. But at the same time, when such an incident happens, it's always a case of rushing to get the band-aid. or oh, where is Bright? Oh my God, where is Cyrus? Or oh, where is so-and-so? How can we actually just go to this meeting and present these points so that it can just be swept under the carpet? And we just need to stop that culture. It's been a very toxic culture of people within government who are responsible for critical infrastructure, for citizen data, not taking into heart that we need to stop just taking this as a trophy it's not a point for you to shine. It's not a PR moment for you. At the same time, in that particular cybersecurity strategy that we came up with, there were very clear points that were incrementally grown. So there's something called the capability maturity model that the strategy was adopted in. And this was actually going to go on for years, for maybe even 20 years. But what we've seen over and over again is that every time a new administration comes in, they want to start something afresh. So when do we ever get to a point where we are actually solidifying the plans that we have? We are actually implementing and getting the right people to do the right things. For me, I, I never shy away from saying that, look, we at times we do have people who are not competent enough to run this thing. Let's just be honest with each other. So when you have someone who's attacking critical infrastructure, and yet we have a national stock that is responsible for this. We also have the private sector that is also charming into this. But we have people who have consistently and insistently been very hell-bent on simply making themselves look good. That has been the, the whole thing take a case for Israel. So Israel has something called the Unit 8200. So the Unit 8200 is actually the president's chosen of the 50% brilliant people across all fields, especially the sciences, and they are taken into training and they are able to contribute to the benefit of their country. So what happens here in Kenya? Or do you have a cousin who's studying, I don't know, BIT? Oh, great. Let's just put them in the national SOC. What do they know about that? It's not fun. From passion. And the one thing I know about uh, cybersecurity, and even Bright will confirm this, is that these are a career that is born out of passion. You spend nights on end, you're in forums in the dark web, you're there scripting, you're there trying things, and no one is appreciating your effort. And when it comes for you to give your voice and to share your opinion and to give some sort of direction, they just turn their backs on you. So it's very unfortunate that we do not accept our own, right? As a country, we do not appreciate the talent that we have. It's not like we don't have talent in cybersecurity in Kenya. Heck, we have uh, Africa Hakon that has breeded very competent and extremely passionate people that can actually drive this particular initiative to support the country. But there's no opportunity that is given. There may be consideration of, oh, you know what, you need to apply through the PSE and everything. I think we just need to let go of that mindset. There are people who are very passionate about protecting the infrastructure and they could have turned to the dark side. They could as well just siphon information and take it to whoever the highest bidder is. But we choose not to because you know what? We know these are our parents' data. These are our families' data that is out there. And uh, there's also pride in knowing that you're doing something for your country. And when you see a country like Nigeria actually taking steps, it's because they've empowered their people. I've worked with Nigerians across the world, and they're very proud of their country. There's no Nigerian you'll meet in Dubai, you'll meet in Netherlands, or wherever you'll meet. That doesn't have that sense of pride. And that is because they've been empowered that, you know what, national comes first. So if we have people who are attacking us, then it's the onus is on the government to try and actually appreciate that. We do have talent and this talent needs to be hinged on already existing frameworks. Like I said, the national cybersecurity strategy is already there. I don't know why it's gathering dust in whoever office it is, but there's opportunity for us to just do, we need to make it right. Let's just do the right thing. We know how to do the right thing. Let's just do it. That's it.
1: I was just listening to Tyrus and and recalling that there's the fact that not only do we have the technical talent, sort of like infosec side of cybersecurity, we have so many people who are well-versed or who have been over the last decade or so praising themselves on how even other interdisciplinary Aspects that impact cybersecurity come in, so policy, law, psychology, and so on. And it's really actually the sort of bane of my existence in this thing is even when you find your government representatives out there in international fora trying to talk about how Kenya has done X and Y and Z. And you have to sit there and be like, you're lying. Though It's really tragic. Now, I was speaking earlier about how this is also translating to the private sector to what is very, uh, for me, is very saddening to see. And I was thinking about the fact that there's such an opportunity, say, for Kenya bankers in the banking sector and other financial sector players, including Syntec Associations, to back this trend of city this idea of everything is a, is a well-kept secret or everybody's in a tough war. There's so many interesting mechanisms. And South Africa is a really intru- instructive example here for the private sector. Now, South Africa in itself is lagging in cybersecurity laws and strategies and so on. But in the banking sector, at least the South African bank tracing was set up independently to actually monitor these trends for their sector. And they're able to actually then work together, not just with banks, but also with companies like Wells Fargo and everybody else who's tangentially impacted by attacks on their infrastructure, the banking infrastructure, and they've been able to do some really helpful work. So it's really tragic for me to see Kenya kind of bankers sitting there and watching this and not even issuing a statement. I was on their website today, for example. And on their consumer information aspect, they have information about ATM fraud awareness and so on and so forth, but nothing on cybersecurity. If these are the companies that are telling us to, to use super apps and so on, we have a bunch of us still asking, why are we using one OTPs, one-time passwords that are sent through SMS, which is fundamentally insecure. Tells you a lot about, even in the private sector, that's supposed to be rather vibrant in this local private sector. It's supposed to be vibrant. We have a ways to go. And lastly, the ministry issued a statement on Sunday, and I don't know how many folks saw this. About a multi stakeholder cybersecurity roundtable. And other than Tespo, I think all the other partners that were listed in the private sector were all US tech multinationals. So that's to give you a lot of hints around who's at the table and who isn't, to the points that Tyrus and Bright have been raising. And it's really annoying to see this still going on. So there's work ahead to. I don't even know how we change a culture overnight, but it may take a few more of these types of attacks to change the mindset about who gets to be sitting at the table, who gets to be involved. And lastly, to the point about skills, what was really sad to read in that particular statement was that for cybersecurity skills, the government is going to be asking the private sector for assistance. There's so many problematic elements towards that because A, even if they're talking about um, local private sector helping them with that skills gap that they have within government, what mapping have they done of the the, the skills or gaps that they need in the government? Will it mean coercing the government to do their bidding? We have had stories in the past about certain platforms basically being used by government security agencies to run their intelligence systems and so on. Tells you a lot about the ways we have to go in how these things are being taken, but it's really quite tragic in 2023 for Kenya to be taking such a cavalier stance on cybersecurity.
0: Thanks. So we'll focus on government for a bit before we move on to the private sector. And what we're hearing now from all the panelists actually is the Kenyan government in particular seems not to have a clue in terms of what is happening. And things are are getting gradually worse. And now they're reaching out to the private sector to help them figure stuff out. It's like literally like when it comes to InfoSec, it's almost like saying that they're running like a a rudderless ship and something has to change. Something has to give. So the next question here is for Tyrus, what can the government learn from this? And like, there's like the technical side of it and whatnot. And it's clear that they know the country's not lacking in technical. You raised a very important point that when it comes to InfoSec, probably the best talent is someone that doesn't have a university degree. And this will be a person that on government payroll is probably persona non grata. We're only hiring graduates and you have to have gone through some sort of formal education and whatnot. And people are not looking at there are certain fields in tech where it's just, it's purely tech job. Like the, that, that you, you have to have. What, what does the government have to do? And what are the things that they need to look at to really get their act together? And it looks like from the scale of things that the government literally is running on borrowed time. Did we lose, Tyrus? It seems so. As we wait for him to come back, Bright, would you be able to respond to that question?
2: Yeah, so the thing is, this talent is there. The right people to be able to actually take up some of these positions is there. But again, I've talked to a few people who are actually said the security engineers in some government offices. And the one thing they keep on saying is, we can't speak. Our bosses are not going to hear us. They don't want to listen to us because, again, they are considered junior, as good as it is few other people that I talked to and a few other, oh, some of these agencies also is the fact that they don't want to be paid well. So they said, look, if they're not going to be paid, why do we go? We have to go back into private sector. So if the talent is there and they're not being compensated well or not being motivated enough to be able to actually, for example, pay for the certification courses and the likes, it's not going to happen. A few others, that others though, have been trained, they've been taken out of the country to let's Israel and everything to be trained and they come back. But again, talent retention is also a problem in the sector. So again, we don't get to keep such talent in the government. So what happens? Who are we keeping in the government when it comes to cybersecurity? All of these people, and know a few of them, they'll all left to go to private sector where they're being paid almost four times uh, the salary that has been uh, offered in the government. And the thing is that always like they've kept the same salary status for more than four years or five years and it's not, there's no growth. So for how long will you stay there? And also the way, the easiest way to apply to some of these agencies or government offices is such a task. By the time it's been advertised, somebody already has a job. The person who has been hired is probably not even um, qualified for that position, like Tyson. said, and that has been a very big uh, problem that I've heard over and over again from people who have either applied and, and, and failed, or those who are inside, but they, they cannot voice out because they've been told to keep their mouth shut because it's a hierarchy issue as well. That has been an issue we've been seeing when it comes to the talent space. That's why we have so many cybersecurity talent out here. Get to attend any Africa hack on meetup somewhere or a conference. And you see the kind of people we have. We have 18 17 year olds who are doing really amazing work, trying to hack, not to hack, but to basically to show how systems can be compromised and how to protect them. We need these people. We need all of these young minds in the system, but they also can be able to contribute. They need guidance to be able to protect this infrastructure. By now, we shouldn't be suffering the way we are right now when it comes to talent retention.
0: As we wait for Tyrus to come back, I'll pose another question to Njira. Njira, how important is the legislature? We pride ourselves in Kenya as having a fantastic uh, constitution that actually works. And we have this very elaborate government structure between two houses, but particularly the parliament. How important is parliament when it comes to issues of cybersecurity?
1: It's absolutely important. And it's everything from the kinds of clauses that are introduced in legislature to the kinds of amendments that will be done over time. And the precedent that is set through um, legal instruments. Like I was saying earlier, you know, we have Computer and Cybercrimes Act that so far has pursued individuals for harassing the state or some. We've all seen the recent events that happened just before this week of cyber attacks, for example. Now, if that's what we're using these laws for, and this is something that happens all across the continent, When are we going to have these laws that actually address the legal recourse or set up mutual legal assistance treaties or other instruments that help us address the cross-border transnational nature of cybercrime? So there's a lot of politics there that is seeded, obviously, in how legislature comes into being. And you already have a dangerous precedent of our constitution or different laws just being interpreted anyhowly. And it poses in itself a huge risk. So it's really important. I remember around the time that um Tyrus to talk about the first national cybersecurity strategy, um, we used to spend a lot of our own time going to parliaments to brief the ICT committees on these things, blood, sweat, and tears around the kinds of conventions and kinds of laws that locally and internationally, regionally, align with where we should be going as a country. Kenya, for example, was one of the countries that championed or said that they would uh, um, ratify the... African Union Convention on Cybersecurity and Personal Data Protection. To date, we have not put our signature on that instrument. It has entered into force given the minimum 15 signatures being required, but we are not even in a position to work with our peers across the continent on these issues. That just speaks to the kinds of tragedies that the way we keep shooting ourselves in the foot because the legislature is supposed to be an instrument that helps us not only work locally, but also regionally and internationally.
3: Sorry, guys. I was in transit, so I I lost you guys. So back to your question about uh, building capacity. There's one thing I'd I'd like to set straight. So there are are initiatives that have actually been uh, very commendable by the government. So first and foremost, under the KDF, like I mentioned, ECRAL has done a very good job at uh, ramping up their cybersecurity skill set capacity. And at the same time, they have also placed competent people within cybersecurity roles, and they've seen the need for it. And also, you have to give it to them as KDF being the national protectors of our integrity, of our infrastructure, of our sovereignty. They are doing everything that they can within their mandate. It would be good to also just try and separate people who completely understand and appreciate the need for cyber resilience within the country vis-a-vis politics or people who are in politics who are trying to politicize the whole engagement around cybersecurity. So the thing is that it's been very consistent that parts of the national cybersecurity strategy have been followed to the letter by KDF. It's slow, but they've made considerable progress. But then the challenge comes in when you have people who become celebrities overnight by simply commenting on Adidas attack that is coming from supposed anonymous guys from Sudan. And this is exactly where the problem is. One thing I understand about government and I've really learned over the years is that government is a huge animal and there are so many moving parts and it's very rare for them to move in a coordinated manner. So, the people who are in charge of policy, and this is the legislator part of the government, they need to up their game. And at the same time, they cannot work in silos. They cannot be the ones who are taking credit for every other progress that is happening within the cybersecurity realm. Opened up about that, I've also come to realize that. For people who are chasing after glory, they can't be soldiers of fortune within cybersecurity. We need people who truly understand this. And I think that's one of the elements that has helped us as a country. Because when you see the National Cybersecurity Operations Center being run by KDF, then it means that these are people who have an idea of the realms to which our sovereignty needs to be protected. When you look at people like uh, the DCI, there there are efforts that have been made within that uh, particular area. But I think they can do better, and there are templates for these things. They're not building anything from scratch. No one is going to bed and sleeping to come up with a way to fight the sort of uh, wild coin vulnerability that we are probably facing, or the so-called mulot boys who are somewhere hiding and extorting money and stealing from people. No, these things are already entrenched. In so what we need is legislature to be very honest with themselves, if they need assistance, then yes, there's already people who within government are very competent to do this. And more than that, we as a private sector from Nigeria to Bright and all the other competent people in cybersecurity in this country, we are able to provide our opinion and also our help when need be.
1: As of today, in today's Senate hearings, we have more statements issued by different actors within government, both executive and legislature. On WorldCoin, than we have around the cyber attacks that happened yesterday. That gives you every indicator you need to have around how serious these issues are being taken. WorldCoin, maybe there are brownie points to show who has acted more than the other. We can backdate that issue into why it happened in the first place. But the fact that there were actually attacks that happened, and there hasn't been anything other than a cavalier statement here and there, one from the Ministry of Information Communications, the digital economy acknowledging it and telling us you can report to the certain whatever. And the one, from Ministry of Interior that said a citizen is back up. Nothing else about uh, what kinds of audits will happen, what kinds of improvements will be made upon. Even the bodies within government or in interagency coordination mechanisms that should inform the citizens on basic cyber hygiene. Nobody has said anything. That tells you a lot about where we are and where even legislature is captured for these brownie points or whoever needs to appease whoever in in the ecosystem. So we have our cutter for us.
0: We're still in the legislature, so I just looked up the makeup of the Kenyan parliament. And we have, I think, 290 constituencies, and then we have the nominated. So in total, there are 349 seats. And if we were to take a tally and log this 349 people, how many of them would actually get the impact or the gist of how important cyber tech is?
1: Sometimes. It's starting to become an unfortunate tourism with cybersecurity that... Unless something has happened to you and hits you, so viscerally, you don't get the significance of it. We have an ICT committee in the Senate and one in the National Assembly, um, and they have joined Senate, com- uh, Senate ICT committees. Clearly, going by the fact that, they, again, there are more statements around WorldCoin than there are around the attacks that actually happen, gives you a sense of who knows even maybe basic cyber hygiene and whether they're using encryption on their devices or leaking nudes by using likes instead of bookmarks on, on X, not formerly known as Twitter, just gives you a sense of, hey, anyway, yeah, as we say, we this stems back to something that Bright and I were in a conversation not so long ago about even AI and saying a lot of this goes back to voting wisely. The fact that we keep voting for what seems to be popularity contests from people who show us what they have, as their metal professionally or otherwise tells you a lot about how we're going in and we're just flying blind. And there's a whole other layer of people who have to do the work that these people who are elected to do are not doing.
0: So that brings about a very (laughs) sentient point and one that's also very important in the sense that the community now needs to sit down and figure out, actually, you need representation in parliament. And for me, as an average Kenyan, I think the parliament... The, when it comes to elections, I see that the most important seat ideally I, I when you're making a choice should be your parliamentarians over all the other seats because it, it's a very important role that we're delegating or the country seems or society seems to be delegating to a bunch of clowns. But there's always, you want to get entertained, Is like just look at the day's parliamentary proceedings and there's always someone clowning in there. Yet it's like one of the most important jobs in the country what is the way forward for the enlightened community for the tech community and for the private sector as well granted that now in kenya every other company is either fintech or is affected by fintech granted that mpesa is the dominant payment channel so these are very important points how does the community now start waking up and saying hey really really need to think through"? the people that actually are being voted into these positions, so much so that the next election is being pulled for, there is at least you have choices of some sensitive people who want to be championing the right agenda. Is there a way
3: forward or
0: should we just all kind of sit down and and see what's going to happen and maybe things are going to self-correct at some point?
3: I think in my opinion, to quote a very important book, you shall know them by their fruits. One of the things that I, I really hope for is that we will have uh, legislators, especially in parliament uh, or even in the Senate and uh, the National Assembly, who truly understand the, the, the scope of our national cyber security posture. Currently, I'm pretty sure there are very few of those sitting currently in parliament who, are, who know that we are, we, are, we are the only country that has a strategic partnership with the US CyberCom and we only have one person trained on that. And at the same time, the do not know how much they can leverage on this. And the individuals who have been exposed to this particular training or this kind of exposure, people within our defense systems, our defense personnel. Number two, the other thing they also need to realize is that the majority of the infrastructure that is run and even the data that is collected by the private sector. So the private sector as well, in as much as we might be on that side and we are complaining or we are throwing jabs at them, The onus is also on the private sector to be very proactive. You just can't have people operating in silos and saying that, hey, you know what, we we have the the shiniest technology in our department or in our organization, so we're not going to engage. And I think we know better than anyone else. There's a lot of collaboration that really needs to go into this. And I'll give you an example. There was a time, I think sometime in 2016, 2017, there was a... A group that was very rampant in uh, attacking banks, and they had just repurposed some ransomware that was just cutting through networks and firewalls like a hot knife through butter. And they, they they stole a lot of money that I can tell you for free. And it took a lot of time for the private sector to appreciate the need to collaborate. But with no particular case in mind, I'll pick up something like the Kenya Bank Association. So these are guys who are at the heart of the majority of the transactions that happened. But when we see an attack coming from a North Korean group, like the Lazarus group uh, attacking the SWIFT systems, everyone goes, "Ma'am, no one is then willing to cooperate with the law enforcement agencies. No one is willing to cooperate with the NC3 or NC4 because they think that we have the brightest people. And that's the one thing you can never get high on your own Kool-Aid. You can't, you can never get high on your own supply. You need to collaborate and you need to expose the amount of vulnerability or the threat level that you're facing or however much data has been ex- exfiltrated. And I know right now it's a bit difficult with the data protection office because there are stiff penalties that are being levied against organizations that uh, are not taking care of personal data. But it doesn't mean that you can't have conversations. There need to be more round tables, less of these T and Mandazi and Samosa conferences that we normally see with no action to it. We need to start seeing people collaborating and actionable items and actionable deliverables being levied against people who are responsible. So for me, I think we need to be talking a bit more. We are not the enemy. We are all fighting the same enemy. We are all watching the same movie. Let's not treat each other like enemies. I totally agree with Ty. We, we have people in the private sector who are doing a lot of R and D.
2: People who are coming up with tools, where we know people who are coming up with tools, tailor-made tools actually that can actually solve some of the cybersecurity problems. We have people who are in innovation. I know people who are in the private sector doing research. To be able to actually converse some of these systems if we don't get to have more awareness getting out there have an easy way to be able to work with the government we're going to have a very big problem and even the private sector like i said a lot of conferences happen and it's just pile of discussions and then we go back and there's nothing that's why we need to force a lot of training and the training has to happen needs to be very intentional to be able to actually make sure people are getting the skills that they needed and i'm not talking about just technical skills the policy is the governance aspect of things, knowing how to be able to implement this, some of those frameworks needs to be done. If you all look at the, the NC4's cybersecurity, the cybersecurity strategy that was released last year, it's a very beautiful document. Trust me, very well done. And if this is something that gets to be implemented, we will be very far ahead. Now, it can be done, but we also need to make sure people are being aware of, this, of exactly what milestones have been achieved. The setting to be able to actually be able to bring it out and say that this things that we have listed said it to be done by July 2023 or whatever, or June 2023, so it should be held accountable. Otherwise, we'll just keep on having new documents and then we'll get to go discuss again in the near future about some of these things and then never come up with anything. Part of this strategy have critical information and infrastructure protection. Very beautiful document again. If we don't have it, please Google it. You'll find it. It's on the SC4 website. And we just need to make sure we are actually able to execute some of this. Otherwise, it will be the same strategy as Therese has designed. The one design. the, water is the and and designed a long time ago in 2012. We'll still be gathering that. If we don't get to make awareness, and I think the government have enough budget to be able to actually get word out there, a lot more awareness, collaboration between entities, and that issue of the bankers' association not being able to have conversations, trust me, it's really important. And that is a very big gap we always had. So collaboration, awareness, more training to be done, more people to get involved.
0: Next question: I'm just gonna open it up to anyone on the floor. Is what should the private sector be doing? And in Kenya, the private sector is relatively broad. So this is in the prism of cybersecurity and what has been happening over the last few years. So you have your small SME or your independent entrepreneur or a sole proprietor. All they're doing is they have a little POS. And then they're accepting impressive payments. Maybe they're going to automate. They're not going to automate. Care rates pushing people to integrate into this EETR. So integrations to the taxpayer. Then at some point, people are integrating to other payment systems or to banks, if you're looking at big organizations. So the issues of personal identifiers and private data, and then there are also issues of finances. And hackers love these financial integrations because there's lots of interesting things you can do with it. And that's where the money is. Now, what should your average business person or owner or manager be thinking about these threats and what should they do?
1: I'm happy to go first. So starting with the banking sector or the larger financial sector players, for a country that's one of the leaders in uh, fintech of digital financial services, the fact that we do not have a financial sector-specific cert is something that needs to be corrected post-haste. Ghana has one. Other countries, SABRIC, as I mentioned in South Africa, exists as an independent risk information center. We do not have anything of that kind in Kenya, which is a tragedy. And it must not go the Kepsa way, which has had the bigger players who pay to play or pay to have a seat at the table. It should be the kind of sector-specific cert or cybersecurity coordination function that allows anybody who's using an MSME and a big bank to coordinate and collaborate. If we cannot have that kind of sandbox in the private sector, we are not really going to be doing very well in trying to sip those kinds of best practices into the public sector. So this is something that I don't know how, maybe there's an AGM that needs to be called within the financial sector players. I don't know if Kenya Bankers are on this space, we, or people who know them, please tell them we have said they need to do something. But this has to be something that allows anybody who is actually operating at any level that interfaces with financial sectors, digital and cyberspace, to be able to contribute they're for us to better learn about the kinds of threats, vectors, and exposures that we have. And th- that for me would be the one solid recommendation going forward that is practical for the private sector.
3: Terrence? Brett, right,
2: you go ahead. Okay. Yeah, sometimes I see, let me start from the government sector before we come to the private sector. Why do we sometimes try to reinvent the wheel? There are some cloud solutions that basically people like Microsoft or Google has, or AWS. And we have presence in the country who can be able to be leveraged or to be able to protect some of the systems. Right now, if you look at some of those websites, basic websites that have been hosted by some government agencies, they have zero security. It takes you just one Google command for you to be able to identify some of the vulnerabilities without even you hacking into them. It gets so easy, any script key will be able to actually compromise the systems. And I'm not going to give some of those commands right here because everybody will go crazy trying to see all, all of them. But it's not that difficult. We need to actually go back to basics. Some of this, if you don't want to completely go cloud uh, because you think your data is getting out there, they're hybrid clouds. Cloud in a way that you can actually leverage on a technology. <clears throat> go to see Catherine here. Catherine will let you know for free. Microsoft have technology that you can actually borrow that. Microsoft technology hosts your know, your data in-house, keep everything there, but you actually leverage a work that Microsoft has done for many years and has perfected it. If we are not the best in being able to actually do infrastructures or know-how services to be managed, let's basically be able to leverage on all of those.
1: On
2: the private sector side, basic cyber hygiene, we still lack a lot of those. Being able to understand uh, governance, policies, and compliance or better security assessment, if you can't do it in-house of sorts to so many companies that are here, we have so many cybersecurity organizations that are right now in Kenya, who can actually offer you services on being able to protect your, se- your systems. If I see this screen right now, I'm seeing The first four or five rules have very good cybersecurity engineers. There's Mikey, there's CodeBast, Moshiowa, Karim, look at them. Eric, Fraze, John, all of these guys are really good cybersecurity engineers, and they have their own practice for you to be able to leverage on and give them the job to be able to be done. The market is big enough. Last but not the least, we need to have a lot more conversations. Right now, the easiest way to be able to compromise most FinTechs in Kenya, and they're not talking, is by API. API security is the worst thing that can ever happen. Most of these organizations set up systems on legacy ways of being able to actually host applications. I see some fintechs hosting websites and not on the kind of cloud system that we have these days, they're still hosting them in a very old-fashioned way. We can't keep on doing that. We need to be able to make sure that we engage the right people, have a budget for it. Most people don't have the budget. And if you don't have the budget to be able to protect every data of people, how are you going to make sure your business stands when it gets to be hit? It's time to say.
3: Taris? Great. Yes. I've been from Nigeria and uh, Bright. Those are really solid points. And. I think these have been very recurrent conversations that we've been having uh, over the years. I've had the privilege of working with one of the largest payment companies in Africa right now from Kenya. And at the same time, I've had the privilege of working with a Telco, that is one of the furthest largest in the world. And from a private sector perspective, I think one of the key things that I find missing is silo mentality. I hardly see people from the private sector participating in cybersecurity affairs, so whether it's you come and present a white paper, publish a paper, do a bit of research, and I'll have it to give it to the previous administration. They really invested in a lot of cybersecurity research and R&D. And there's a lot of opportunity for us to grow, not just our skill set, but also just expand our minds and just try to look at things from a wider perspective. Number two, I'd also say that you'll never be at a position where you can say that I'll never be hacked. It's only a question of when it happens we will all have our day in court, one way or another. And, and I've seen this happen over the years. So I, I do not understand why some organizations would think that they're more special than others, but it's just a matter of time. And it's probably that whoever has found the vulnerability has not found the incentive to let you know that they do have access to your customer's data or privileged information or even in your infrastructure. Number three, I think collaboration between government and private sector is something that can never be heavily emphasized. We need to be having this conversation. I have been preaching this since 2011, I think. And we make baby steps, we make two steps ahead, then we make 10 steps behind. We need to be having conversations, not just round tables for a good photo op, meaningful conversations that actually churn out, even improvements on the current legislation and regulations that we have. It's not to say that our current Data Protection Act, which is heavily borrowed from GDPR, I must say, is the best. It can get better. And how else can we improve on that if the private sector does not come in? Their day-to-day job is to make sure that their bottom line is not affected by one or more things like cybersecurity threats and, and also losing customer data or heavy penalties or not having professional indemnity against their transactions. There are so many things that the private sector can contribute into existing uh, policies. So whenever there's a call for chiming in into regulation or public participation, please just come on board. Give your perspective because you're sitting on that data 24-7. You have people who are working there and earning a salary just to make sure that you're not compromised. And lastly, the other thing I'd say is that, like Pride said, the pie is huge. And currently we are not even at that of it. We need more people in this sector. Most of us who are in cybersecurity are providing mentorship opportunities for people who want to jump into this field. And we've seen majority of it, especially during the nascent stages of our country, especially when the fiber cable landed and we had tremendous internet speeds. People have access to information, but. In the flurry of information, in the flood of information, people don't know where to start. So we, we are more than willing to accept people for mentorship and also just to try and groom people. If they end up being in government and good, it's, it's best for us. At the heart of it, we need to be nationalists. We need to really appreciate that. Yeah, we are a leading economy within our region. So why don't we just protect that which we've taken so many years to build.
2: I'd like to add some, something to that, something last but not least. There's so many people who you can never hire the best. Of them. That's something Safaricom did in the past. And I remember just a disclosure that I did to them, and that fostered them to be able to uh, to create what I call a back bounty program. Safaricom is the only company right now in, in East Africa that I know, or even in Africa that I know currently, who had the back bounty program, allowing you to be able to report bugs and, and, and the likes responsibly to, to, to them. And they actually pay you for it. They have the budget, they, they do have a cybersecurity team, they do have. Really good security juniors, but they don't. Have everyone who holds all the skill set, and they paid off a lot of money. If we have private sector companies who can actually be able to um, allow that to happen, or the government open that up to be able to allow people to responsibly disclose some of the bugs, the sales, the systems, think we'll move faster. But try to think that you'd be the best to be able to secure everything. We have too many systems. We can actually get them uh, all to 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 be super secure by just a few, by a handful of people who have been hired. There's always so much you can actually do out with the hands of people.
0: All right. So now we'll move on to the uh, audience questions. We'll try to wrap up by um, 9.30. So if anyone has a question, you can uh, jot them down by replying to the thread for the space, or you can ask for a speaking slot and the uh, admin will at least allow you to the podium within the very limited time. We can't answer all the questions, but we'll try to at least curate some of the best questions. So there's a comment here by Captain Rubani, and he says, cybersecurity professionals need to speak out more, not behind closed doors and closed forums, but on public spaces, especially in mainstream media. Who has been on national TV to speak about the last week's attack? Now, I'll twist this question a bit. Is this the problem of the media? Is it the problem of cybersecurity or professionals?
1: I want to address that one just because it's not just a matter of having cybersecurity professionals, let's say bright tires or others going to media for how issues are happening can create a, a sort of fear factor. And then it will be that individual's neck on the chopping board. Um, so it's not just enough for that to happen. You need for that to happen with the knowledge and the support of systems that will actually be bolstering what's being spoken to. I would not be comfortable telling Bright, let's go prop him up on TV or Tyrus. And then the next thing, they've been carried by DCI because the cynical mentality is still there. That's why the spaces like this are hosted. And that's why we have these conversations. And any of this information is still out there. Uh, and lastly, we also de- do need our media practitioners to understand these issues and start speaking to them. Because a lot of the kind of coverage you still have on Silicon Savannah is this rose-tinted glasses view of things versus this realities of the not-so-neat side that needs to be addressed as well.
3: Great, I'll, I'll build up onto that. I've been on national media for a number of years now, addressing incidences, but once everything cools down, that's it, you're back at the back banner. No one remembers you up until the next incident. So I think it's also, the honest is also on the media just to understand that this is an ongoing conversation and we can't always be called in like firemen when things are burning. We spend day-to-day trying to understand and unravel some of these uh, complexities uh, within the field. I've even put in proposals to Two of, two of the largest media companies in the region, that we need to have weekly soundbites about cybersecurity. So long as we have this conversation going on, it will always stick in people's mind. It will not be forgettable. And at the same time, I think it's the same issue that plagues our judiciary because they do not fully wrap their hands around cybersecurity incidences. And it's only when they're presented with a case that they now will call expert witnesses. And let me just give you an, an of that I was involved in some years back. So there was this guy who apparently was, I said, and arraigned in court because he had been accused of having hacked into a banking system. And so when he was put on the stand, the prosecutor was asking him, so it appears that the IP address of your laptop was found in the logs. And you know what he did? He just feigned stupidity and he said, you know, what's an IP address? And this was the IT administrator. And that's how that case fell apart because you cannot force someone to admit that they actually do know exactly what an IP address is in a court of law. And so if the the accused stands to say that, yes, I do not know what an IP address is, how are you going to prove? So there's a lot of training from the ground up that needs to be done uh, in awareness. And also consistently having these conversations really opens up people's minds and uh, it really exposes them to the realities that cybersecurity is here with us. And it's not just something that affects them. It's when it happens to you is when that it dawns to you that actually is the reality that we are living in. Thanks for that, Taras.
0: And I think it is a very good point that, you know, the, the onus is also on the media and to figure out what the editorial product is, especially when it comes to technology. Granted that majority of Kenyans are touched by technology in one way or another. Over 90% of the uh, population is touched by technology every day. It affects society and granted that the media is the fourth estate. They need to figure out, okay, what are the more important things rather than the day's political rally to put into the editorial. So challenge over to, there, to the media. Next comment is from Shinwa, and I think this is body directed at Nigeria because she talked about this. It says, sector certs need to be communicated better. The banking sector has, it says, quote, unquote, their are set under Kenya Bankers Association. KBA has claimed this and another government agency validated it worth more discussions and insights.
1: There's a bit on this drum already. KBA needs to do a better job of communicating of its tools and its services, especially where it interfaces with public. Because again, as has been pointed out, with this culture of me, I know best. Let me stick to what I know. And you even hear it from practitioners within the banking Mm -hmm. sector too. But what good is that information when all of us are under siege and nobody is communicating? And this was very clear last week. We had incidents where Sudden banks were taking down their bank to invest a feature without communicating to the public. What fresh nonsense is that, to be honest. So that just tells you a lot about. You can have the best tool, but if nobody knows about it and how it interfaces with the public and how it creates a virtuous feedback loop, you can keep it to yourself, to be honest.
0: All right, there's another comment from Filoski. He says, the government seems to be working on a perspective of security by obscurity. Non-acknowledgement and sometimes chest-thumping. And NC4 is also filled and represented by government brass drawn from disciplined forces who may not
3: necessarily understand the ins and outs of cybersecurity. Any comment on that? I think I'll take on that. It has been widely held that yes, some of our disciplined forces, personnel, especially dealing with cybersecurity may deal with it like conventional crime, you know, asking the suspects, you know, where have you hidden the IP address or where are the logs, things like that. But I think that was... Something that used to happen about 10 years ago or so, but right now I think they're very competent people, especially within KDF that have upskilled and have also acknowledged that they need to treat this differently. It's not conventional warfare, not your usual kinetic warfare where you're going in with tanks and guns, but you're dealing with someone that you don't know you probably never meet. You probably never engage them in battle. And I think the remedy to this is more conversations. problem with us, and I, I keep seeing this a lot in different sectors, not just cyber securities, I think post-colonialism, the British way of doing things is just trying to be secretive, you know, try not to share as much information as you can. But that I think is working to our detriment. We definitely need to talk to each other a bit more, just try and unmask the secrecy and also the mystery around seeing guys in your uniform in front of a sock, uh, understanding uh, threat actors, you know, looking at things that pertain to threat hunting and things like that. So I think it's more of a communication thing. It's more of a PR thing, just to put it out there that we have people who are competent in this and to enforce and some sort of confidence. And once this confidence is out in the public, then I don't think the public will start looking at them as your old in shorts. Last
0: question before
3: we start wrapping up. This one reminds me of how simple life used to be back in
0: the day where you just have to update your, your antivirus and uh, all these things uh, get uh, taken care of. So the question is from Chichi Leting. I don't know whether it's a he or she, but the question is, what does one as an individual do to protect themselves and to be alert to possible threats to their cyberspaces?
2: Maybe I can click that.
0: You just go back to basics,
2: the simple things like having your email up as your base of security uh, for almost everything you do uh, because you are you use that for almost every kind of thing. Um, you have having a two-step verification, having backup codes for that email, uh, making sure that you have those set up for everything that you do, and, and all social media accounts, where is a, which is a very easy target for people. Make sure that you actually be able to secure those. Know that viruses are always going to come and start giving you phone calls, sending you phishing attacks. Just be very careful and be very vigilant as to exactly what is coming to you and how you can actually protect yourself from those. If you're not sure, if it looks fishy, it's probably a phishing attack. Make sure that you do get to actually read about some of the cyber attacks that are happening or if you get to see them. Just basics, go back to basics and that the business is just basically looking at your email and not responding to just anything that comes to you.
1: I would quickly add that there are plenty of helpful tools out there just to help you do your own sort of like cyber drill exercises to I'd quickly identify those things that Bright was talking about. So look out for those because I think many are available also for just little cost or no cost at all.
0: Yep. So a lot of education, educating yourself about the threats and uh, and whatnot. And we're seeing this from some private actors who are trying to educate the customers. I I think a lot needs to be done. And granted that this is a national security threat. Government needs to have budget to communicate to the population on the threats. It just can't be Safaricom's job. It just can't be the bank's job. A lot of me needs to be done at the national level to communicate the threats about how simple things that people can take to, to, to protect themselves. Don't use your birthday as your password. Don't use weak passwords. Use password I mean,
2: managers. Yes. But yes, there's, absolutely. There's something with password managers. And I freely, I tried to download a password manager so. that I paid for and I paid dearly for it when I forgot the master password and to recover it back was hell on earth. And I discovered Microsoft, Microsoft, Authenticator has an inbuilt uh, password manager, use it, it's free. So far as you have a Aukman account, it's technically free for you to keep your passwords there, you can sync with your Android, iOS, your browsers. So basically you don't get to lose all your passwords as often as we do a lot. We need to just basically take those steps because we do always forget our passwords. But if you can have a password manager, which helps you to authenticate even if you change phones on location or connection, it it, it, knows, it knows it will ask you to get back in and you have to just use one master password for all of those. So Microsoft Authenticator is one of the good ones that I use. It's been working for me for
0: some time now. Yeah. Google also have a hefty password manager for those who don't mind giving their data to Google, but it, it at least works. Now we, we wrap up. So I will ask Tyrus to start wrapping
3: up for us. First and foremost, this is such an informative conversation that we had. And I want to really appreciate Mongo Capital for hosting this space. It is uh, very timely and at the same time for seeing such a huge number of people who are very keen on cybersecurity and learning a bit more about it, the ins and outs, but most importantly on the incidences that have been happening. I've been preaching on how to try and prevent yourself or your organization from being a victim of cyber attacks. To the point that I've now changed my tune and I've said, you know what, you'll come look for me when it actually gets to you. Because I think for those of us who have been in the trenches in cybersecurity, we are very obsessive about it. We spend days in the deep web and we see leaks, data leaks that are touching onto Kenyan companies to be very specific. And for me, I've made it a very personal goal to scout out there and see the mess that is the cyber security and hygiene has been happening especially with the ransomware attacks that have been happening over the last six months. And I knew for a fact that this this was going to be a very interesting year. If you're very keen on my timeline, majority of what I post is cybersecurity incidences. And so what I've done is that I've started distilling these particular incidences for people who may not have the time to go out there and score the internet for information or for data that has been leaked. So what I've decided is I will engage in that conversation um, once you appreciate the fact that your data is out there. And it's a lot. And it's a lot within the last four or five months. I can tell you for free, I have a lot of data that has exposed a lot of corporates. But from past experience, people choose to bring their ego to the meeting as opposed to bringing the vulnerability and understanding exactly what it is that they're facing. And with the data protection office being very active, I really appreciate the fact that they are putting out very stiff penalties and not forgetting that you risk running a reputational deficit over and over again if your data or your customer's data is out there. So I think it's a clarion call I'm making to anyone who's a decision maker in any a reputable organization. Kindly, when we do approach or when you do approach us, I think it's time for us to have an eyeball-to-eyeball conversation to quote someone who said that this week.
0: Bright, over to you, closing thoughts.
2: Yeah, so thank you for organizing this. I, like Terry said, very timely. I feel like we need to get a lot more education out there, from the young ones to old to older generation. For example, I do a lot of activation. Africa have gone in high schools and universities. I've been trying to just teach people on a, on a bit for cybersecurity. And now I want to move it to parents because parents need to know exactly what is happening out there and how they can protect themselves because the extortion and the likes that are happening in, in, in a lot of schools is becoming too much. We need to have a lot of collaboration with the government and this is uh, with multi stakeholders and be open. We need an easy way to be able to work with the government. Right now, we can't. There's no way to be able to work with them easily because there's a lot of ego at play. And we can't keep on doing that if we want to actually move ahead in this in the cyberspace. We need to be able to make sure that we have an like an easy way of also reporting about some of these incidents or things we have. And that uh, people don't get to be scared. So many cyber security uh, gurus in the group right now are scared of being able to bring or some things they find because they feel like if they do that, will be fine. they will be prosecuted or something like that. Yeah, Africa Hackon does a lot of, more of this training. Look out for them. We do a monthly meetup on which we post every other time, uh, and we need the support that we can as so always to be able to do this. And it's always one philosophy. one of philosophy that I have is train somebody else. If you guys don't know, Therese was one of the people who actually grew me when I was starting in cybersecurity. And that ripple effect has, I've seen so many other people who are in this, uh, in this group right now to become the gurus. And we keep on sharing until today, we still share ideas, we still share tools. And it's not that because we never know everything and I'll never know everything. And that's the best way to do is to share. And that's the best way to go. So hoping to see more collaboration in the industry plane and get the most from everyone.
1: As I always say, the technical is very much political. And in this case, we're seeing that even cybersecurity has political implications. To say, vote wisely. I know it's just voted, but next time vote very wisely. Look up whoever is in the ICT committee in the Senate, in parliament. They may be your representative member put them under heat and pressure about what they're doing other than just issuing word salads. And lastly, I've just reposted on my timeline a a toolbox that we've developed at Carnegie for financial institutions, especially MSMEs, and those who are less cyber mature on how they can enhance their own security as well as that of their customers and third parties. It's essentially a capacity building toolbox to help bolster your cybersecurity. And I hope it'll be a helpful tool and don't hesitate to reach out to me in case of any questions around it. Thank you so
0: much. I'd like to thank our panelists for a very interesting and engaging conversation. And always to thank our listeners for tuning in to yet another Mongo space. And to the team at Mongo for doing all the coordination, uh, all the stuff in the back end to make sure that this is another successful space. So to everyone listening, wherever you are, good evening, good afternoon, good morning. And thank you very much. Thank you for having us.